Hey, welcome to the podcast. What's doing? Today is Tuesday, August 13th, 2019. A big episode today as we have a guest in studio here in the podcast home center. Now, this guest is a return repeat offender from a previous episode. Why would I choose the same guest twice? Frankly, we have high standards here, and I feel that this gentleman meets and exceeds those standards. So I'll tell you a little bit about him in a minute, but just a quick intro and two, uh, two items before we get started. Number one, we just exceeded 2,000 downloads. So thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. How about it? Uh, so thank you for your listenership. And the last podcast I mentioned, the 1980s, what I thought to be defunct store, unclaimed freight, someone contacted me and said that there is, in fact, an unclaimed freight store in Bethlehem, PA. So I might have to check that out. I still recall asking my dad as a boy, I said, what does this mean, Dad, this unclaimed freight? And he said, well, you know, like sometimes when people buy something and then they don't pick it up? And uh, I said, yeah, at the time. But, you know, thinking back, that that explanation still doesn't fly with me. I've never bought anything for $400 and I've never picked it up. How does that work? So if you have some holiday shopping to do, unclaimed freight is the way to go. Let's do our ad right now so we can move on with the fun and games. This podcast is sponsored by Integrity Wealth Management. They can help you with portfolio management, retirement planning, financial planning, estate planning services, life insurance, and wealth preservation strategies. Please call them at 215-864-3598 or visit their website at www.integritywealthmanagement.com. Dot com. All right. So uh, today's episode, a political slant could be exciting, could get chippy. Who knows? It could go all over the place. But I'm really excited to have our first guest. Let me tell you about him. Mr. Rick Topper has been in the classroom for over 30 years. He has um, done a number of things both inside the world of academia and outside in the uh, business, corporate and energy world. I know one of his particular passions is environmentalism, and what I like about Rick is that he's not merely a Facebook keyboard warrior, that this guy practices what he preaches, and now as a retired teacher, I know he's even getting more involved in state and local politics, so he, like I, cannot turn our eyes away from politics today, from the Democratic uh, primaries, the debates, as well as the Trump presidency. So I think we're going to talk a lot about that today and get his thoughts as well as my own in the state of the world. So welcome to the podcast, Mr. Rick Topper. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Glad to be back. Glad to be your first return guest. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Like I said, high standards. Um, so what have you been up to? Um, well, this is not political, but I um, joined my first geezer softball league okay so it's an over 60 league and uh the rules are just hilarious um you have to run past a bag you can't stop at a bag because you might hurt yourself <laughs> so you just run full full speed right past the bag into a fence or whatever 
Um, you can't tag anybody out. Uh, everything's a force out. Um, I'm just trying to think some of the other things. I, I you can't, can't even imagine him running straight <clears throat> through the bag when you're on second and third. Well, on second, sometimes you can't even touch the bag. That's illegal. You have to run inside the bag or outside the bag so as to avoid collisions. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's slow pitch and – I've never like this. Well, I've now have two softball games in my life racked up in my life. You know, that's what I've done. I've played two softball games. I've always played baseball. It's killing me that this isn't baseball. Uh, I don't know how long I'm going to stick with it, but so far, so good. Well, we're going to talk about the everyone wins the trophy generation. It sounds like you're already yeah. there. Yeah, I think oh! I won a trophy. <laughs> <laughs> the zingers are coming. Um, all right. Well, good for you. Hey, you got to stay active. Speaking of being active, we just played a, a nice tennis match prior to this podcast. So as we may debate politics, we can also find common ground over tennis. And isn't that what the American, American experiment is all about? Tennis. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I think that's what the founders had in mind. I'm not sure. We, we can both play and then, uh, you know, exchange ideas. Uh, what I've been up to is uh, I hiked the Appalachian Trail. I'm going to tell more about that in the next podcast episode. So unbelievable physical things and also just binge watching Game of Thrones. So oh, okay. my, right. my wife has come home and she said, what did you do today? And I said, well, uh, John Stark uh, met Daenerys uh, for the first time uh, on Game of Thrones. That's important stuff. <laughs> And she'll say, oh, well, that's good. Like so, And you're only seven years <laughs> behind the curve, so that's that's wonderful. I, I committed this summer to watching it all, and I'm on season seven, episode three now. And then my wife will say, so what else did you do? And I'll say, well, also, um, you know, Rob Stark was murdered at the Red <laughs> Wedding. And she's like, did you do anything outside of the, the realm of Westeros? Did I tell you about Rob Stark? <laughs> So it's uh, – I don't know. It's, it, it's, I don't know if she's quite that proud. We just finished binge-watching Broadchurch. David Tennant. Okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Uh, it's one of those places like uh, Murder, She Wrote, a tiny town where it's mm. the deadliest place on earth. <laughs> Anything can happen and it usually involves murder to so pretty much everybody. So – you know. Why don't people just move from those? If the murder rate know. is one thousand percent higher than the national average, just it's like move. move to New York, where, where, <laughs> it's, where, it's, where it's safe. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point. So aside from binge watching uh, Game of Thrones, like I said, I can't peel my eyes away from uh, politics and say to the world, I rarely talk politics on the podcast, but I'm glad I can get some of the thoughts that I've had out today. So uh, I'll let you kind of kick things off, and I guess two overall macrocosm topics would be how – what do you – I saw the Democratic uh, debate a couple weeks ago, and I sort of see the uh, – seemingly some front runners are developing. You know, who, who do you think uh, would be a good um, opponent to uh, Trump as well as uh, overall thoughts on the Trump presidency? Two huge questions, so take them wherever you'd like. Yeah, first question, <clears throat> who might be the one to oppose uh, him? Um, I know that Biden is apparently the front runner by a large margin. I don't see it. I think his time has passed. I mean, um, I think his natural cons- constituency, because I'm, you know, because I'm like older, um, he looked to me like his time has passed. And I don't mean that in a kind of like ageist way. I just don't think the guy understands the modern world. Um, I wouldn't have said that, pardon me, four years ago. I wouldn't have said that eight years ago. But it's very clear right now that I think his time has slipped away. Um, 
having said that, you know, the media is, at least in my own opinion, is setting this thing up as his, him being, Biden being the centrist and everybody else being somehow the unelectable left. And, you know, you only have to go back to uh, 2016 to see that a fringe candidate not only took the nomination, but took the election. You know, Donald Trump, I mean, he's the definition of a fringe candidate. So, you know, personally, um, I would like to see Elizabeth Warren. I would like to see Elizabeth Warren and probably Julian Castro or Beto O'Rourke, somebody that would give us a fighting chance of taking Texas. Because if we took Texas, and Texas is apparently purple, it's no longer, you know, deep red. Um, if we can take Texas, then that whole triad of Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania that, that kind of threw the election back in 2016 to Trump, that's less important. Uh, I don't know that that's possible, but I do know that putting somebody on the ticket from Texas, like Julian Castro or Beto O'Rourke, I think that would be a very, a very, very sharp move. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, I just think she's a fighter. I think she got her head screwed on straight. I think she understands what, what, what this country needs at this point. Um, and if the media can stop painting her as being somebody who's like super hard left, you know, and giving other people a pass, then I think, you know, I, she might, I know she's, she, when she talks to people, she seems to convince them. She seems to be convincing. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that her, um, her platform and I'm hoping that her audience gets bigger and bigger because I think she's a viable candidate. Um, I also, you know, I thought after the first, um, debate. I thought Kamala Harris was, I was, I was taken by her and I wouldn't oppose a, a Kamala Harris candidacy, but I, I've learned things about her right now that kind of put me off a little bit. And, um, I'm more interested in Cory Booker, believe it or not. I didn't think I was at all, but I'm more interested in Cory Booker now than I was of the other second tier candidates. I mean, Right now, Corey, Corey Booker had a strong debate in the last. He did, debate, didn't he? Yeah, he did, and he made he made good points, and he seemed to have, you know, he seemed to be able to kind of uh, get out of the weeds and actually see a bigger picture on a number of his comments, you know, uh, and I, I like that about him, and I, I think he's still hanging around two percent. I don't see that happening, but I did like him. Um, what turned you off from Harris? Was it the revelations about her behavior as a DA? Yeah. I, I was unaware of that until the post-debate analysis. Yeah, I had heard stuff about it, but then when I learned more about it, and, and you know, she seemed, uh, she was taken down pretty badly in the second debate, and she didn't um, seem to know how to respond. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. I thought, you know that you're going to have a target on your back in the second debate because you did so well in the first one. You should be ready for these questions. And I think that was the criticism of Biden, too. How did he not prepare for this line of questioning about the busing uh, yeah. in the mid-70s? Yeah. He seemed to have no rebuttal. Yeah. What, what were him and his team doing in preparation for this? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I have a hunch that his team was probably preparing. And I don't think Joe, I don't think Joe has it anymore. I mean, he was a strong debater. He was when he went, went around with, with Biden and... Um, what, 2008, 2012, and 2016, 2008, 2012. Mm -hmm. He was very mm -hmm. strong, but he's not anymore. And it seems that President Trump is attempting to split the Democratic Party with a lot of his tweets and messages saying there are the moderates with Biden and the progressives with some of the other candidates that you yeah. name. 
And you said that, well, you think a fringe candidate can win or a progressive candidate because Trump did just that. I wonder if, you know, some of the, say, blue collar, middle of the country Democrats would side more so with Biden. And if some of the, uh, for lack of a better term, socialistic ideas like free free healthcare, free college, uh, and things along those lines, um, kind of uh, hurt the, the party unified. Because it seems to me if the Democrats are split, that they'll never get enough votes to, to win the election. Yeah, and that's a problem with a contentious primary field. And we're going to have a lot of debates, and, and that, that kind of, that kind of um, split is going to be reinforced in the mind of voters, I'm sure. Um, you know, and it's something that we're going to have a hard time recovering from when we when we enter the general election period. Um, I'm just just take healthcare for example. I mean, people are trying to paint that as being like, well, where are you going to how are you going to pay for that? You know, it's it's a crazy thing. How are you going to pay for that? And they talk about thirty trillion dollars, which is a legit number that this program would cost thirty trillion dollars. What they don't say is that absent that. The same health care for the same number of people over the same period of time would cost $50 trillion. So you're looking at a net savings of somewhere around $20 trillion if you switch to a Medicare for all, single payer kind of system. Uh, but again, people want to throw the word socialism at that. At that. And, and that's one of the things that I admire Cory Booker. He said, stop taking Republican talking points. Stop using Republican. Stop doing their job for them. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, it almost seems like uh, the president is content with letting the Democrats tear one another apart. Uh, but at some point, there has to be a unification. But I guess that's still far down the road as we have many debates to go until the primary. Yeah, and the other thing I try to console myself with is that nobody's paying attention. I mean, you and I are. <laughs> and there's like seven we're other strange. Yeah, yeah, seven other people are, and we're huddled around our screens watching this stuff, <laughs> uh, like agonizing over it. And no one else is paying attention yet. Uh, they're just doing the Iowa State Fair this week, and you know they're just they're eating ice cream. I mean that's what people are doing right now. And I don't mean that in a condescending way. It's just sure. that politics is not what people. That's not how they live their lives every day. And some of us follow it crazily. Yeah, maybe it's uh, a year from now, the yeah. summertime, when things really start to heat up. I think you're right. That's when people start paying attention at the conventions and, and all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of an overview of the Democratic primary. What about Trump's overall uh, job in the White House so far? I think he's a failed human being. I don't think he actually ever became a human being. Um, the, 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 I guess the most recent and probably the worst example of that has to do with um, the ice raids, the uh, shooting in Waco, Texas. Um, excuse me, in um, not Waco, in um, the shoot, it's hard to keep track of which one now, right? Yeah, on the border, um, El, uh, El, Paso. El Paso. Yeah, the mm -hmm. El Paso shootings. Mm -hmm. I sound like Joe Biden getting this, getting this, he's wrong. Um, <laughs> anyway, the shooting in El Paso, he goes down to visit there, a little baby, um, two parents murdered, protecting her. 
you know, Melania's holding the baby. They bring the baby back to wherever Trump was. He stands there with a grin and a thumbs up sign and completely unaware of the horror and the tragedy of the situation. He sees it as a campaign appearance. He sees the baby, this human being, his parents were murdered as somehow a political prop. I think the man is, has never fully achieved human status. Um, and, and, you know, it's one thing after another. It's one thing after another, Brian. I, I don't understand his followers. I don't understand how you can put those things aside. I understand people who are conservative. I understand that. But to take somebody with this guy's complete lack of moral uh, compass and, and think about voting for him is absolutely beyond me. Uh, I, I think he's a disaster. I, I don't. And, and the, the thing that scares me so much is I don't know what's going to happen in 2020. I don't know. Um, yeah. I mean, you mentioned the uh, ICE raids and, uh, you know, is this a president who is simply delivering on what he said he'd do, that he would ramp up immigration uh, reform? And, and uh, you know, you wonder about the mind of the Trump voter. Is, is this one of the things that is starting that has won them over and makes him, you know, despite the negative press every single day and the, you know, the gas like that photo op? Yeah, uh, he still has a very good chance of being reelected. So, you know, that's where my mind continues to hover around, where like 92 percent of the news is saying this guy's awful. And yet there's a very good chance he's going to get reelected. So yeah. w where is the rub? Where? Well, part of it has to do, you know, and again, I probably sound partisan saying this, but part of it has to do with, you know, election tampering, with 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 uh, gerrymandering, with making sure that people are not cannot register to vote. Um, you know, the whole voter harassment kind of situation, I think, is is true. I mean, right now in Florida, honest to God, I mean, it sounds like 1954, but there's a poll tax, you know, again, expressly expressly designed to keep people of color, African-Americans, away from the polls. Um, the Republicans are very, very clear that they know they cannot win an election where everybody votes. They have to keep the voting pool down. They know that historically, if they can keep people of color away from the polls, they will carry elections. And that's that's their strategy. Um, you know, and it didn't used to be, at least overt, as overtly, but it certainly is now. They struck down the, the Voting Rights Act. I mean, that was from 1965. That's what allowed, um, you know, African-Americans uh, access to, to voting, which is a fundamental right. Uh, they repealed certain, like many portions of that, um, I guess, in 2017, 2018. So, you know, voters in Ohio don't have that protection anymore. There's some, some valid points, and but I, if we say that this election is going to come down to three or four swing states like Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Florida, these are not heavily African-American states. It's the white Americans that Trump seems to have won over in this 2016 election. And I worry that if people keep saying Trump won because of voter tricks, because of Russians duping us, because of this and that, they're going to miss the whole point of the 2016 election and potentially repeat the same mistakes. This guy won. I, I don't see it as a, a fraud. I see it as the left's just complete failure to understand why he won. So let's attribute it to some other trick or delusion or 
The Russians are involved. I mean, do the Russians also influence the Brexit vote? Do they influence the ousting of Merkel in Germany? There's a whole wave of anti-globalization and anti-immigration occurring all over the world. And to attribute it to, I don't know, these seem like very small pieces of a much bigger puzzle. I think you're right. I do think, and I think Democrats, you know, uh, the left, Democrats, whatever, uh, have focused, spent too much of their time focusing on 2016. And, and it's not that they should spend less less effort on Russian interference in the election, because that's, I mean, that's fundamental to our democracy. But to focus on that solely is the reason why they lost. Well, maybe if you did the arithmetic, yeah, maybe... Maybe they did influence enough voters in each of those three states that tipped the Electoral College. But really, that's not the point. And that's why I thought that Cory Booker, kind of in the last election, was kind of smart in pointing that out, that we have to, you know, we have to actually look at our message here and we have to figure out what our message is rather than focusing on, on those old talking points because they get tired. People get tired of hearing them. You know, the entire uh, charade of bringing... Uh, Bob Mueller back to uh, testify before Congress. That was a terrific, like, strategic mistake on the part of, on the part of Democrats. It blew up in their faces. Um, he told them what was going to beforehand, but somehow they thought that there was going to be some magic they brought that he would pull out of the bag that would be a, a smoking gun. He said he wasn't going to talk beyond the, the the four corners of the report, and he didn't. Uh, I don't know what they were expecting. Uh, the one thing I will add, though, Brian, and, and just going back to your original question about Trump's candidate, Trump's presidency, um, what he's doing environmentally is criminal, um, and I mean I don't mean that in a in a, a small c sense. I mean this, these are crimes against humanity. I mean we know better now, and he's still not doing anything about it uh, about the environment. He's, as a matter of fact, doing all he can to undo. Uh, to line the pockets of you know, you know, oil industry executives and 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 here here's here's the problem that I have with it. Um, I think that any president who has her or his head screwed on straight is going to have to do two things. One of two things. First of all, you're going to have to nationalize the electrical industry, the power industry, oil, gas, electric. Nationalize it. Um, it's been done before. Eisenhower, Truman did it. Uh, Eisenhower did it. Um, Woodrow Wilson did it in 1917 with the production of uh, the steel industry and all with the production of, of weaponry. Um, it's been done before. This is every bit as big a crisis as World War One or World War Two. Uh, it's just slow moving, but it is every bit as inevitable. And we have to we have to move yesterday onto a carbon neutral way of generating power. And we can't rely on existing industries to do that. Um, it would cause all sorts of hell politically, but they have to do that. And honest to God, Brian, my thought is if that doesn't work, then you have to declare martial law and do it that way. I don't think personally, and I'm looking at the evidence, but I do not think personally that democratic capitalism is up to the task. I mean, it's letting the whole game slip away. Because their event horizon is the next quarter's profit, sheet, you know, P&L sheet, the next quarter's profits. And, you know, the event horizon for the uh, environment is way, way different, way longer. And 
you know, we can no longer, I mean, capitalism has failed in, in, in an approach. The free market cannot address this, apparently. And, and if it can't, then government has to. That's my opinion on that. And, and, and Trump, of course, not only is he not there, he's going full speed ahead in the opposite direction. Yeah, I just read an article this morning about lifting up con, uh, conservation restrictions about mm. uh, elephants or some sort of species. That yeah. It is disheartening, the record of this president on the environment. Uh, but, I mean, to do what you said, like Hillary Clinton went into the Midwest and said, essentially, we're going to go with, with clean energy and you've more or less lost your jobs, middle America. Like when you say that the coal miners, yeah. have you essentially lost the state? Trump said we're going to bring coal back, which oh, even the thought kind of a, you know, is difficult to swallow. But do I fail to understand what these people in the middle of the country are, are going through? Yeah, and he lied. is a political suicide to, to say that if you're trying to bank on these three key swing states. I think what you have to do is you have to, you, you have to set out a plan I think one of the things that Elizabeth Warren does is uh, she does exactly that. She talks about the solar industry, for example, now, which employs currently several times the number of people in America that the coal industry does. It's growing like gangbusters. And with, with you know, in the face of government regular, in the face of government uh, helping, you know, fossil fuel industries, without help, it's growing like crazy. If you took away the subsidies for fossil fuels and maybe gave them to solar and wind and, and green energy or maybe even not, just level the playing field, I think you would find out that people could find new places to work. And I don't mean – I mean I'm not foolish enough to think that a 57-year-old coal miner is all of a sudden going to find a place in a digital economy. But – People know how, I mean, manufacturing is a thing. I mean, these things have to be manufactured. If those subsidies went to the solar industry, solar industry went to training people who um, could manufacture these things, then I think you might stand a chance. I mean, because right now these people are without hope. These coal miners in West Virginia, in Kentucky, wherever, they're without hope. And Trump gave them a false hope, and they know they've been lied to now. The coal industry is not coming back, and somebody's got to give them a way forward. Trump's not doing it. He's giving them a way backwards, which is a lie. You're right. You're right. I mean, it, it does have substantial risks. Yeah, because it's so easy to say, no, we're going back. We're going to bring the coal back. But that ain't happening. And, um, and I guess at some point you have to depend on the sophistication of voters to understand that and see where their best interest lies. Yeah, that that's the question. What in terms of the sophistication of voters, what are they voting for? The here and now or, you know, the future? Um, and you know, I hope what you say is true and comes to pass because that makes all the sense in the world, converting, you know, what we have into a more solar based and clean energy in which these workers can transition into these jobs. That would be ideal. Uh you know, a lot of people are saying that we don't manufacture in, in the middle of the country anymore, that uh, globalization, while some of the uh, we've experienced some benefits from, you know, eight years of sort of 
an Obama presidency that emphasized globalization, that now in the middle of the country, that these factories are closed and, you know, that this, these people haven't suddenly discovered opioids and, and are angry, yeah. that this is an all interconnected process where we manufacture things in China. And, you know, the, there's a whole center of the country that is um, hollowed out. It, it seems to me that being anti-globalization would would be connected to uh, environmentalism and conservation. But uh, I wonder how you feel about that. I, I uh, was watching um, a show which I really I really liked. It's not popular. It's not a great. It's not. You're not going to hear about it, but it's called Years and Years. Okay. And it's a show on. Um, I think it was HBO actually. Uh, just ran six episodes. Emma Thompson was in it. Um, it starts out in 2020, and it, it fast forwards in Britain up to like 2039 or 2045 or something like that. And Emma Thompson is a Trump-like demagogue rising to power in Great Britain. And um, there are there's one kind of global shock after another. It's it's essentially a slightly dystopian view of um, of the world uh, that we're facing. Um, and at one point, there's an old woman um, who's the, kind of the matriarch of the family. And she just goes off on this riff and she says, it's about the $1 T-shirt. And people, you know, her family, the younger members just look at her like, what? And she says, well, we want the $1 T-shirt. So, you know, we're allowed to, we're allowing Main Street to dry up because we, you know, a, a T-shirt on Main Street will cost $6, you know, and... I tend to think, and again, I, I, I'm, I'm probably very naive economic, you know, in terms of it being an economist, but the $1 t-shirt I see as a problem. The fact that we relentlessly drive down prices for everything, we're the ones that are pushing markets overseas. You know, we're pushing it out of China and into Pakistan, out of Pakistan and into Vietnam, out of Vietnam and into Indonesia, wherever we can get the cheapest t-shirt. That's where we're going to push the market, and if I can get if I can get the shirt that I'm wearing for ninety five cents, by God, on Amazon, I'm going to do it. And you know, we're the ones by by making those decisions. I think we're the ones that have strangled Main Street, have strangled American manufacturing. And I'm not. And it's not a mea culpa. I'm not blaming it on myself. I mean, that's what that's what people do. They look for the lowest price. But we look for the lowest price. I mean, I look around my house, and we try to be somewhat conscientious, but so much stuff, Brian, we don't need. Sure. You know, and sure. I could have bought the $6, the $10 T-shirt instead of the $1 T-shirt and sacrificed $9 of the other junk. I would have had a T-shirt that was made here that, that supported a worker here, and I wouldn't have had $9 of other John, you know, I don't know, I can't name mm -hmm, it, but mm -hmm. other stuff. You know, so that, that $1 t-shirt problem seems to me to be something worth thinking about. But I, I take your point, and you're right. I mean, you know, manufacturing has dried up, and when I try to figure out what we have to do to bring it back, it can't be just an individual moral kind of decision, like Brian's now going to decide, Rick's now going to decide. It's got to be something that they we need help from the government. Yeah, which is one of the things that I look at, and when I think about small government solutions and the whole Republican mantra that that government, you know, 
isn't the solution to the problem. Government is the problem. I tend not to agree with that. I think right now we're in the grip of forces that are so large, climate change being one of them, that the only proper response is governmental. That's the only scale that we can address these things. Um, you uh, once again raised some good points. Yeah, it certainly seems that uh, the Republican philosophy is smaller government and you sort of choose uh, with your you vote with your feet, um, but it is, are some of these problems insurmountable that need global solutions? Um, anything else on your mind? Um, let me just think. I think, uh, you know, in terms of Medicare for all, you know, I, I'm, I'm absolutely in favor of that. Um, I think it's, you know, by and large, a much more efficient delivery of systems than where we are right now. Um, I think that's I think that's where the country has to go. I think our um, obsession with socialism is somebody trying to bring up 1950s and 1960s scare tactics, McCarthy McCarthyist kind of scare tactics to address an issue that no longer is an issue. I mean, when you when you look at quality of life, when you look at longevity, when you look at health care, you look at almost any indicator. Uh, some of the advanced democratic socialist countries in Europe are far ahead of us. Canada is far ahead of us in some of these things. And I think we could absolutely learn from that. Um, you know, I don't think we have to go whole hog right into it right away, but I think healthcare would be a great place to start. I think, you know, uh, you know, getting a handle on prescription prices would be a great place to start. I don't see any reason on earth why um, healthcare is tied to employment. It's like tying it to bowling or something. I mean, there's no reason you can, I mean, what's the, why do that? I mean, it's like two completely random things. And somebody said, let's connect these. And everybody said, well, oh yeah, we have to have these connected. Well, they're not, you know, why is it that you can only be healthy so long as you work? You know, as long as you have a job that pays, I, I it, it doesn't make any sense. And I think that kind of eliminating that would not only that, but I think it would be a huge help to the the generation of young people that you and I teach, have taught, and that we're busy screwing over as as rapidly as we can. You know, young kids. You know, not only are they hamstrung by by college debt, so they can't find the job they want, the job that they're good at, the job that will actually give them some satisfaction or some psychic reward. They have to find the one that will pay. Because they have to hit their college debts, coming right six months after they graduate, right out of the right out of the gate, they have to start paying that, and they have to make sure they have health care. What if they didn't need to worry about health care? What if they could, you know, without that pressure, find a job, flow to a job that actually meant something to them, rather than a job that just put, you know, that just had the bennies, just had the benefits. And I'm not just saying for kids, but I think. People our age as well. Mm -hmm. What if you weren't hamstrung in your search for a job by the fact that you had to have health care? I'd be a professional poet. Yeah, well, this, yeah, this, maybe. And, this and is you, a utopia. And the poetry magazine that hired you wouldn't have to worry about paying your health care. Yeah, because, I mean, and again, I mean, I was on the other side of the business as well where you have to hire people. And what you did was when you hired somebody at, say, I'm going to pick a number, $50,000 just to pick a number. What you have to do is you have to say, okay, 30% you put on top of that, and that's for that's what it's going to cost you. 
so it'll cost you 65 to pay somebody 50 because of health care, because of you know insurance and that kind of thing. And what if you didn't have to do that? What if, what if companies weren't handicapped by that? What if employees weren't handicapped by that? You know, now I understand your taxes are going to go up. Well, yeah, but your health care costs are going to go down more than your taxes go up. That's the 30 trillion, 50 trillion thing we're talking about. And that's why I think that would be a huge first step in the right direction. After, right after, we nationalize the electric industry and the power industry. Now, along those lines, with this younger generation, some candidates, particularly Bernie Sanders, are floating the idea of free college or forgiveness of all college debt. Yeah. I wonder how you feel about that. Does that affect the bottom line of taxation? And does that also free up um, sort of this generation to pursue things that might not be, uh, I guess, financially sound if, if they had this debt yeah. over them? Well, one of the things it would do is it would free up this younger generation to actually buy houses. Mm. I mean, they're not buying houses. I mean, nobody in, in the 25-year-old – I mean, there's a, a, a pretty profound, as I, as, I'm, as I understand it, a pretty profound demographic shift occurring right now where homeownership is becoming increasingly out of uh, the question for an entire generation of people because of college debt, because of uncertainty in terms of – you know, job security and things like that, the gig economy. Mm-hmm. You know, those kinds of things are making something as daunting as homeownership very, very uh, problematic. Now, if you took away those college payments, I think all of a sudden you're going to see this huge injection of money into the economy. Right now it's going to the banks and it's going to essentially, like, I don't know, uh, exorbitant interest rates on college loans. I mean, I do not see why, and I'm stealing this line from Elizabeth Warren, it's not my own thought, I don't see why this generation's education should be a profit center for banks. You know, right now they're getting 7 8% on college payment and college loans. I think that's criminal, especially because as somebody who's in his late 60s now, I got interest-free loans. I got my loans canceled. Uh, through the National Student Defense Loan Program. These were governmental programs that, that people conveniently forget, my age, conveniently forget, that we benefited from and then we took away from the next generation. You know, I mean, I, I benefited from this. I mean, the first five years I taught right out of college, I got 10% of my um, student loan canceled every year. So right off the top, 50% of my loan was canceled. And the, the loan I was paying, I was paying at 2%. And I was paying, you know, having gone to the University of Pennsylvania, I was paying like $3,000 a year tuition. So, you know, my loans were something that it was frictional. It was kind of like, oh, yeah, I have to pay $60 a month for my college loan, not $600 or $1,300 a month. Now, I could buy a house on a teacher's salary back then. I could actually buy a house with a student loan, what was left of my student loans. Kids today can't do that. They can't build up any equity. And I just think it's criminal that we're waging economic warfare on our kids. It's like if college is so detrimental in terms of finances for a young person getting sort of out of the nest and uh, getting on with their adult lives, I wonder if people should start to question the entire institution, particularly in terms of its uh, how much it costs. Uh, you know, when there are so many free 
ways to learn things online, through YouTube, through uh, lectures, through other things. Uh, you know, I wonder if this institution that continually puts kids behind the eight ball, if people are going to start to question its worth. I, I know a lot of educators often preach the mantra, college isn't for everyone. College isn't for everyone. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And yet, when you have people in the middle of the country who don't go to college, that don't vote, you know, or, or vote for someone like Trump, are, are they suddenly deemed deplorable and stupid? Yeah, yeah. So there's this double-edged sword, I see, with our, our perception of higher ed. Yeah, there's two issues that you raised there. I'm going to try and keep them in my head. Um, the first issue is... Um, in terms of college being the answer for everyone, I, I really believe the answer is no. And it's not that I'm saying that some people don't wouldn't benefit from college, because I think people would. But right now, there is an entire group of tradesmen, tradespeople, tradeswomen, tradesmen, who are at retirement age. Um, and there is a, a, a severe shortage of tradespeople now, carpenters, electricians, plumbers, um, all of those trades, the building trades, they're dying for people. They can't get people fast enough. And if you're a kid now, if you're 17 years old and you don't want to go to college, you have a very, very bright future if you're willing to work as a plumber, as an electrician, as a carpenter, as somebody in the building trades, because there are simply uh, not enough people anymore. I mean, there's, there's a shortage. It's severe and it's getting worse. And the economics of the situation are starting to reflect that. I know that, um, again, my information here is about a year old, but one of the highest paying jobs you can get out of high school, and it's close to six figures, is for people going to a six-month program to learn how to repair um, so, uh, wind turbines. And you're getting $90,000, $95,000, $100,000 uh, PICO is paying their tradespeople uh, somewhere around $90,000 a year now. And these are people who are not saddled with college debt. So that's, that's the one side of the issue. And, I, you know, I, these are not dumb people. No. I mean, you know, one of my sons walked away from a full college scholarship in soccer because he wanted to be a carpenter. Well, he's a carpenter now. He's a lead carpenter, and he's doing very well. He's very happy what he's doing. He's a smart cookie. I mean, and he thinks, I mean, I watch the way he thinks. I watch how he applies his mind to the world, to the physical world. And it's a thing of beauty. I mean, you know, it's not something that, that I would for a moment look down on. I mean, it, it's to me, to me, it's wholly admirable. Uh, the second thing I would point out is that um, state governments, again, and I have to say this, in this, in, you know, it's Republican state governments have been systematically squeezing the lifeblood out of State, state educational institutions, colleges. Um, the the uh, system in California used to be the envy of the world. I mean, you know, the, all the, the UC Berkeley, UCLA, those, those schools, they used to be the envy of the world, their quality, the people they attracted, the, the students they turned out. And, you know, the state government has, has strangled it. Alaska right now is in crisis they just pretty much disbanded their entire system, their entire educational system at the college level. Wisconsin under Scott Walker, they, they kind of, they raped their system. Uh, Washington State, a Republican like house there 
has been taking money away one after another. I know in Pennsylvania, the same thing has happened. You're getting strangled. It used to be that the state would cover 50, 60, 70 percent of tuition. Now it's down to 10 or 12, you know, 15 percent of tuition of the um, in the state systems. And again, who pays for that? But kids do. I mean, so it's people my age. It's it, it's it's um, it's legislators my age who have got the benefit of it, and then turn around and deny that to the coming the up and coming generations. It's bad faith. It's just bad faith. It seems like a somewhat corrupt system. And in question, you know, of Darwin, it, does the system need to survive? I wonder if an equally sound education could come through internships, volunteer situations, perhaps voluntary travel and, and work, uh, situations. But, uh, so we'll see, you know, where, where it goes in the future. Uh, speaking of the future, any final thoughts, unless there's other points you'd like to make? Um, uh, probably, no, you know what? Any final thoughts would, wouldn't be final thoughts. They would keep going forever. So, <laughs> well, I, I, you know, yeah. you, uh, you'll always be invited back. This is, uh, you're my best guest. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's high honor. Mm-hmm. That's high mm-hmm. honor. No, I think we can, I can probably, uh, stop talking right now. Um, yeah, you probably and your listeners have probably heard way more than enough. They have stopped listening. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for joining us. Yeah, maybe we'll touch base again in a year when this thing really heats up. Oh lord! Yeah. Uh, I think my next episode, I want an NFL preview. I uh, don't invite me to that. Yeah, because <laughs> I, uh-huh. I want Colin Kaepernick to play for the Eagles. So, uh, <laughs> oh man, that's yeah. another podcast episode right there. I won't. I won't take anyone that will win us a Super Bowl. I'll tell you that. Yeah. All right, Mr. Rick Topper, thanks for joining us. Always a good time. Uh, People at home, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, folks. Bye.